Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back, everybody. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkan, with the Hindu Studies channel of the New Books Network. And today I have the distinct pleasure of talking with Mani Rao. She's an independent scholar and a poet. And she is, of course, the author of today's feature, Living Mantra, Mantra, Deity, and Visionary Experience Today. Mani, it's such a pleasure to have you on the channel with us. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I guess the first thing that our listeners might be interested in is a little bit more about yourself, uh, your background, where you come from, that sort of thing. Well, uh, where I come from, you mean locational, I guess? Uh, I I actually (laughs) meant it open-ended, so back uh, geographical, (laughs) cultural, educational, as you will. Okay, well, um, uh, primarily I'm a poet and have uh, recently completed a PhD in religious studies from Duke University a uh, couple of years ago. And um, I've been studying early Indian sources for the last, I would say, decade or so, um, before which I was, I guess, uh, um, and well, uh, before which I guess I was not doing that. I was doing many other things. But um, my primary um, interest in mantra um, was about a decade ago as well. Right, so one of the one of the key features I think that'll interest uh, many readers of this book is that you have your own personal interest in and history with mantra. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that before we segue into the content of the book. Okay, I guess I am, I'll make the connection with poetry because that's how I came into it. Um, I've always been very interested in sound, and I've always seen poetry as um, sort of like a finding finding the uh, natural form within an art, when you start with something arbitrary and then you sort of discover its natural form is how I've always seen uh, poetry as, and as working with like uh, uh, air architecture, you know, working with sound forms and with uh, temporal, it's temporal form at the same time. It's just so based on sound. And um, uh, then, of course, there's the whole language philosophy, the Indian language philosophy of Shabda Brahman, um, which talks about sound as the medium of uh, creation and material, material creation. And so I got very interested in the concept um, when, I, when I started reading about it. And um, when I got, uh, when I had an intense uh, encounter with mantra, um, at first, I started uh, trying to appraise that as something aesthetic, um, trying to understand if uh, there was some deep aesthetic difference between different mantras and what was the effect of the mantras coming from. And as I got deeper and deeper into it, I actually, uh, one, realized that it had nothing to do with aesthetics, or maybe if it does, that's not the, the reason for its uh, potency, and uh, and then secondly, I also um, uh, discovered uh, uh, my own reactions and responses and experience of mantra, and um, that took me deeper into the subject. And um, so when I started doing a, um, a doctoral degree, mantra became my first uh, topic of research. It's um, it's quite uh, wonderful that you straddle that line between um, an embodied practice or, or something that's personally dear to you, um, and also something that's become an object of study. Now, for for our listeners, this this tension is sometimes described in religious studies in various ways. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes we think of it as this idea of, well, they're insiders of religion, they're outsiders of religion. Mm-hmm. One may be an insider, but one may 
one must view it as an outsider to be religious studies versus theology. Now I leave it open-ended as to whether this tension exists in the way we think it exists or whether it exists for you. But um, I think you're poised to provide some very useful insight in terms of this perceived tension in religious studies. This, this is really such a deep question. And um, for myself, I've actually uh, never known which side I'm on, whether I'm uh, a scholar who's uh, being a practitioner and playing double agent, or whether I'm a practitioner who's trying to get into scholarship in order to have a, a, a more informed understanding or a more objective understanding. I'm, ne- I'm not sure which it was. But uh, I must say that I am also interested in many topics which are not part of my practice. So therefore, in that sense, I'm a scholar. Um, at the same time, I really don't find much excitement in being a scholar without connecting with whatever it is you're studying. Um, somehow, ultimately, no matter what, you, what, you, what, what topic you pick, you tend to look for things that give you more information or understanding about yourself. Um, mm. That's a very, very broadly broad statement. I mean, that applies, to, I guess, to any topic. I find that, you know, we gravitate towards what tells us more about something deep that we want to find out about ourselves. Um, so the two are really very very intermingled and it's i think it's very hard to separate them and and actually i don't see why we should separate them Mm. so this uh, idea that um, there must be some some interest some deep profound interest um, this resonates a great deal i think that when there is some profound interest you're both more um, an impassioned lecturer as well as a scholar and really to complete a dissertation, it has to be more than just jumping through hoops. There has to be something in it for your, for yeah. your journey, your intellectual journey, even your personal journey. Um, one thing I want to say to the listeners is that uh, while uh, money clearly has these both perspectives, the book is written as a stringently academic book where she shares uh, her background very forthcomingly with the reader it's not, um, the book is not, for example, memoirs of a spiritual journey. Oh, no, no. It's an academic yeah. study of, of, of three very fascinating um, sites that will come to shortly. But what's interesting is that she can dovetail the two um, in her being in some way. Um, having said that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but while you're doing the scholarship piece, you're doing it in a different mode than while you're doing the practitioner piece. And so... There's sort of some there's there's a boundary there on some level, or do you think that's yeah. a false? Is that a false? Uh, is that a false boundary? Um, you know, actually, um, talking about the field work, I would say that in at different locations, I was uh, my participation was different, right? So the participation, or rather, um, well, it's an anthropology of experience, firstly. So. That, that already creates a, a certain dynamics. Um, and I think that in this particular topic, in this particular um, field of research and anthropology of experience of mantra, unless you have some stake in it yourself, um, how can you discover the questions that actually matter to the people you are studying? You know, uh, I'll give you one example and then I'll go sort of, I'll take up um, something you asked. For example, I would say that before I started practicing uh, mantra, you know, practicing is an odd word, but before I started doing mantra, um, mantra sadhana, uh, my questions were very, very uh, cold. Um, After I started doing mantra sadhana, I started wondering about a whole lot of different Questions such as how do you tell the difference between imagination and and reality? And how do you know that if you if you have seen a deity, whether it's whether you have imagined it or whether it really has been a visit or visitation? You know mm-hmm. how do you cho- how do you choose a deity? Let's say you have a problem. How do you know whom to approach? You know, um, 
what is it? Why is one guru better than another for you? You know, can a guru take back a mantra if you've got a mantra? Those kind of questions I don't think I would have ever uh, even thought of had I not um, been the insider, you know? So. And and I I must say that uh, even reading the intro, it was very clear to me in reading, I believe in the introductory um, chapter, you state those, some of those very questions you, you uh, recapitulate, you recapitulate right here. And the questions bespeak someone with a depth and worldview and understanding, um, understanding from the perspective of a practitioner rather yeah. than start off from the perspective of, well, um, deities don't exist, um, <laughs> right? So whether deities exist or not, yeah. for the practitioner, they most certainly do. So then yes. only when you expand your horizon to this level, can you ask the very sensible question, how does one choose okay. one's deity? Exactly, exactly. You have to go all those various steps to the other side, and then that's when you get those questions. Because otherwise you don't, you know, yeah. That's absolutely fascinating. So maybe but, tell uh, us. Sorry, uh, Raj, can I just say one more thing? You know, you absolutely. talk about how I've, um, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's absolutely an academic work. It's, uh, it's uh, I, I believe, scholarly work on mantra. But the reason I have some autoethnography in it, um, two reasons. One is just disclosure, you know. It's transparency and dis- disclosure. I need to... To, to make sure that I'm not hiding that. Um, and the second thing is, um, well, actually, the, the external reviewers asked for it. <laughs> well, I had a certain extent of disclosure, but the external reviewers who looked at the manuscript said, well, does the author actually have, uh, have a, has she had any visionary experience? Can she share anything about her own experience, etc.?" So, um, I, I reconsidered that and I decided to include something that was relevant. Um, while I've actually not disclosed everything, obviously, because it's not about me, it's about mantra. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to do was create some kind of uh, fetishizing about what happened to me, you know, because that's not, that's not even the point. Um, so I was not doing that. But the very, very keen interest from the readers of the manuscript um, made me sort of include some parts like that. I think I think the I think the line is straddled quite well. I think it's possible for authors to straddle that line irresponsibly, and the scholarship is either not rigorous or um, it takes on a confessional tone. Whereas um, you have provided some uh, very key insights into three using drawing on three case studies. Um, and at the same time, you are forthcoming with um, with the fact that you yourself have practiced and experienced um, the efficacy of uh, of mantra recitation. So the book is called Living Mantra. Why this title? Tell us about this. I uh, I take it as a double entendre, but I'll I'll leave it to you to to tell us about this title. Um, see, one of the themes of the book is um, about how tradition is dynamic and the tradition of revelations is an ongoing, um, it's an ongoing uh, tradition, that it's uh, not something that's thousands of years sort of in the can, you know. Um, see, when we, when we talk about the word rishi, one immediately thinks of, some guy with uh, with with like a top knot and a beard and probably wearing orange and or sitting under a tree or so on like a sage you know the idea is a sage and they're always called sages but um in fact rishi means the a person who sees it comes rish rish comes from drish which is to see and anybody with uh, inner vision is a rishi and when i started um, researching the experience of mantra, um, what actually gave me a focus was um, discovering that revelations are actually ongoing right now. And it was a chance conversation where I was uh, talking to uh, a Vedic pundit 
And, uh, you know, we were arguing or debating, whatever you'd like to call it. And I said, look, you know, you've been doing sadhana or, uh, you know, you've been doing Vedic mantra since you were a child, since you were put in Veda Parshala, and now you're like almost 70. And uh, you're still telling me about Dirgatamas and Angiras and all this. And I said, what have you discovered? You know, have you seen anything? I mean, where is, where is the Veda? Because you're saying it's Anadi, it's Anantam that is without beginning or end. And we talk about how it is, uh, you know, we only have so many shakhas, so many branches, 13 branches out of like the Bhagavata, Bhagavatam talks about thousands uh, or over a thousand. And we talk about how all these branches have been lost. And if they've been lost, you know, where are they? Uh, is it uh, lupta means it's lost. Supta is like sleeping or even gupta is hidden. So I said, you know, we don't know what it is. And you're saying it's there. So where is it and how come you've never found it? And he said, oh, it is possible. And he gave me a PDF file with a documentation of a number of mantras that were muttered by a person called Daivarata when he was in deep meditation. Now, Daivarata is a disciple of Ganapati Muni, who is a disciple of Ramana Maharishi. Many people know, I mean, would recognize the name Ramana Maharishi. And this boy, when he was in uh, Samadhi, in meditation, in deep meditation, was found to be muttering all these mantras. And his guru, Ganapati Muni, like documented them, recorded them. And there are over 400 mantras. And teams of scholars have looked at this and found that it has all the characteristics of Vedic mantras. So anyway, he gave me all that information and then I started looking at it and going deeper. And as I started doing that, I'm like, wait a minute, this is not even a century old. This is 1968, this publication. And that means, you know, we, talk, we think about the Veda as something that was revealed thousands of years ago. And it's technically, it's a closed canon. But, and I said, what about this? This is not available. I mean, it's not actually part of any extant canon. So what's going to happen to this? And he said, well, there's a grassroots movement about trying to include it in the Atharva Veda. And that actually was my very first piece of information that told me that there's something else going on on ground. And I, when I, in my, in my uh, field work, I started looking around with that in my mind. And one after the other, one after the other, I started discovering people who were receiving mantras in their meditations. Fascinating. Uh, that's fascinating. So for our listeners, some of you may be specialists, some of you may be educated um, lay folks. Now, one of the fundamental difference, uh, 30,000 foot view world religions, one of the fundamental differences between Western religion or Abrahamic religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, is that the canon is closed, the revelation is closed, the divine has spoken, and now we have to do our best to sort out what he has said until the end of days. Um, in, in Indian religions, um, in Hinduism, the revelation, the canon may be closed, the Vedic canon may be closed, but the revelation is open. The divine will participate and speak to various people at various times. And now we're learning through, the, through this research that there are practitioners who, from their perspective, have received revelation on par with the 3,000-year-old Vedic corpus. They've received, in their perspective, Vedic mantra. And so this is a, obviously a fascinating find. Um, can you say a little bit more about how what you saw on the ground? We'll dig into some of the specific case studies, but yes. how what you saw on the ground differed from what uh, perhaps Orthodox Hindus or scholars of Hinduism accept as canonical Hinduism? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, let me clarify that actually um, my fieldwork was eventually in three locations that were more classifiable as Tantra rather than Veda. Um, even though the, the first example I gave was that of Vedic mantras, um, um, it is actually uh, Tantric uh, mantras that I have uh, done field work on. And um, so, that, sorry, and, to, yeah. sorry to interrupt, just for our audience, yes, who, may sorry, may yeah. not, who may or may not associate Tantra, 
Tantra with various uh, practices in the public imagination. Say a little bit about what you mean by Tantra versus um, Vedas in this context. Okay. Uh, Vedic mantras have tones, swaras, and they are uh, um, a, a particular body of uh, uh, a, a certain ancients, I would say. Uh, whereas Tantra is, um, uh, and, and those Vedic mantras are usually like, um, more like hymns, where you have several lines and you have um, uh, sort of meaningful uh, in, in some way or the other, uh, combinations of uh, sounds, which may be words, uh, which are words and, and lines. Whereas Tantric mantras include um, hymns as well as syllabic mantras, uh, they may be uh, very short, they may be just a few syllables, um, and uh, they, will, they may address very specific uh, deities. Um, they have, uh, it's, a, it's, it's considered a different tradition, and that is also the, I've also explored a little bit about, you know, differentiations and distinctions between the two uh, what are considered two entirely different uh, practices or traditions. I've explored the relationship a little bit in the conversations as well. And so I, I don't know if that helps. I'm, I'm sorry. I was trying. How do I say it? How simply can I say it? Yeah, it, it certainly does help. Um, so if I were to simplify, really what we're doing is we're oversimplifying, but it's, it's needed at times to, to start grappling with these concepts. But so Vedic, Vedic recitation involves um, different tones, specific melodies, and it's usually a hymn. So there may be a hymn to Lakshmi called the Shri Suktam that goes on for 15, 20 verses. Yes. Correct? Yes. Right. And so the a hymn would be a, a, a praise in, in full sentences to the yep. goddess Lakshmi or Shri yep. versus a tantric mantra would be simply uh, a short sounds uh, and some of the sounds may not even have semantic meaning that we call bija, uh, seed yeah. sounds, correct? But tantric mantras also are like the Sandar Lahiri is tantric, which is like a, a, a several verses, right? Uh, the Lalita Sahasranamam is a thousand names of Lalita, and that's, that's, that's lengthy as well. So there are longer uh, tantric mantras, they're called mala mantras, right? And then there are bija mantras, which are the syllable-based mantras. So yes, um, yeah. Great. I think you explained and, it very well. Yeah. <laughs> and and so now that we have, now that we've made this podcast into an intro, <laughs> into an intro Hinduism class, um, you were saying back to your book uh, the difference that you found on the ground versus um, maybe what's accepted as as canon. Ah yes, correct. Um, you know it's very interesting that. People are practicing mantras and in the ways that are given to them by their gurus. A guru is a teacher. And I found that there were communities of practice, right? That, and I call them mandalas in, in my book. Um, a group of people and who consider one person as their guru um, will start sort of following the mantras initiated by that guru to them. And that guru would have possibly received those mantras in their um, meditative states. Often, if it is a, um, a set of mantras or mantras that are, let us say, already known, let's say, the, uh, let's say it's a mantra like Om Namah Shivaya, which is everybody says Om Namah Shivaya. So it's not like somebody's going to invent that mantra. But still, there is something called achieving an authority to pass that on. You know, so the person who has the power to give initiation of that mantra to a disciple would have attained a certain mastery of that mantra and the ability to harness its potency. So that's very interesting. Also, like, let us say, let's say there's the Parashramakalpa Sutra, right? Which is like, uh, a source text, okay? Text not used in the literary sense, but let's say it's a source 
of um, uh, utterances. Okay, and but still the 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 mantras being practiced by people will be the version that is given to them by their guru of the Parashurama Kalpa Sutra because the guru would have gone through the Parashurama Kalpa Sutra and made his or her decisions about what they want to consider as the source text. So in fact, what you're finding is um, there is like a, there is a formation of authority out there, right? And that authority and the authorization comes from the, the poetics of experience of a visionary. And then that visionary passes it on to their students who then further discover their own revelations. So then the guidance for what they're going to do comes from within the practice. And it's really fascinating to see how then practice starts shaping theory. Because, for example, I met one uh, practitioner who told me how he was trying permutations of the Panchakshari, you know? He told me how if you do um, a, a different uh, permutation, a different vision occurs. He gave me examples of what he had practiced and what he found um, what um, efficacy different combinations of syllables had. And these are all his own discoveries. Now, of course, obviously, they are subjective. But if he is then going to pass that on to somebody else, that person will then start experimenting with that. You know, So this is a completely um, on-ground tradition. I met a very interesting... Uh, uh, um, practitioner Swami Madhavananda who told me about how he was uh, he was going he was going into the pranava which is the om om sound omkara and he was meditating on different fragments of that he talked about the many different parts to it with great detail and i said to him you know i have not actually come across anything like this i mean i've read the bindu upanishad i've read this i've read that i've read this I've not come across so many different fragments to it. You know, he was talking about meditating on the resonance of the uh, undertone of a part of Om, you know, and he broke it up into all the different parts and began to explain it to me. And he said, oh, it's not written anywhere, of course. It's, it's, uh, it's in the Shruti, but by that he meant that it's actually um, in the... In the uh, tradition that passes on from one to another. He said he got it from his guru and it's practiced on ground, you know? So there's so, a... Yeah. So there's a couple of key themes here. <clears throat> we'll talk broad strokes and then maybe we'll look at some of the specific data uh, and the differences across the three uh, sites you visited. But okay. Some of the common themes, um, and these probably uh, match up fairly well with your concluding remarks, but some of the common themes that we see across your study of mantric recitation is the importance of initiation of the mantra within the dynamic of a guru-disciple relationship yes. from a qualified, authorized um, teacher, a guru, yes. mm. and that this itself constitutes a parampara, a sampradaya, yes. a, a, a lineage uh, yeah. Parampara means lineage, but literally it means from one to the other, and that this on the ground um, transmission from guru to disciple, um, generation after generation, this constitutes something that is living and dynamic and profoundly either elucidates or contradicts what we see in textual sources. Absolutely. Though, of course, the guru-disciple uh, transmission is intrinsic to tantra uh, practice itself, right? Because uh, tantric mantras are generally passed on from a guru to a disciple. But what I'm saying is that the variations that are passed on, the original, uh, original within quotes, the original mantras that are passed on, you know, the, like the guru who 
who decodes new mantras from inside the Lalita Sahasranamam and then publishes a book about it. And then it then circulates to thousands and thousands of people who all start like practicing those mantras. You know, um, all of this is new material. This is part of the glory, I think, the, the messiness and the glory of a, yes. living, <laughs> a living, dynamic religious tradition such as Hinduism, yeah. where it's yeah. ongoing. But you know, the thing is, Raj, I had always thought that that was true of the Itihasa Purana, which is the epic histories, the Ramayana and Mahabharata. I had never known. Um, and of course, I, I had not met anybody who had ever thought that, you know, even the uh, mantra tradition was not exactly like that. I guess the epic histories are uh, include author voices and imaginations and improvisations and so on. But this kind of seems to be very solidly grounded in experience and in visionary experience, you know? So it's not like they are making up mantras, but it's like they have to go really deep into practice and practice sometimes for years and years and even decades. Um, uh, actually, it's not time. That, that's silly. It's not, a, it's not even the time. It's, there are so many factors, but they seem to absolutely come out with what they have received or what has been re revealed. So they are natural forms rather than composed and forms. They're not compositions. They are revelations. And that is the difference between, I guess, this tradition and the, the Itihasa Purana tradition. I guess some would argue that even that is revealed, but I'm just talking about the mantra, right? <laughs> Yeah, I think I think the the I think that works like your study really demonstrate this this idea that is much more of a, than an idea. This idea of open revelation that yeah. that the revelation of um, concepts, deities, um, insights, mantras yeah. is ongoing, yeah. and there isn't a specific epoch or a specific class of of people necessarily. That yeah. have a monopoly on that, although clearly um, on the ground in mainstream Hinduism, there of course is a very classist structure to a monopoly on religious authoritative knowledge. Um, but in your study, if we can get into the specifics of what you see from site to site, yeah. But it, but it really does strike me as fascinating that. Um, there aren't these stringent boundaries. You know, many of the sadhakas, the practitioners you interviewed were women. Um, some of them were Westerners even who had done practice, such as yes. I think Dawn was one of the ones in the book. Um, yeah. And this seems to be very organic and very case to case. Yeah. And uh, whatever the, the guru's uh, requirements or criteria for initiation are, they certainly don't seem to be, um, you know, gender class race type thing. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, it, it is all based on individual experience. Uh, but, you know, Raj, you were talking about, um, I guess, uh, the perceptions in scholarship. But, you know, it's also the perceptions in much of urban India. And uh, I guess uh, there is a, a sense that, um, that this whole um, idea of... Uh, uh, revelation and mantra and all this is from thousands of years ago when the world was probably different or nobody knows if it was either composed or revealed and you kind of like keep on repeating that. But the point is that um, that's not actually the case. It's only when I started traveling um, and going, I guess, sort of off the, off the standard uh, route. That I that I started finding that I wouldn't even call it a subculture. I would say it's just a huge culture of this, you know. Mm -hmm. So so while you and I might uh, say, oh mantra, oh let's say in Ramayana, you know the bala bala ati bala mantra, etc. You know our examples might be from really uh, ancient legends, right? But the people out there in the towns are talking about the Chandol Shastri who lives in the village right next to them and what happened to their uncle who went and met him and then, you know, the goddess who visited him and, you know, and, and then who saw her, 
etc. They're talking about events from the last few decades, and they've all got stories and legends and experiences and so on about the efficacy of mantra. And that is also why they continue the tradition, not because somebody told them about something that happened thousands of years ago, which sort of has turned into a TV series, but what they actually have right palpably right next to them. The power of living mantra, right? That it's yeah. something yeah, exactly, very much, yeah. very much, uh, I take it as a pun in that it's, it, the, the, the mantra is a lie. It's a living yes. mantra. And also, it's something one does. They, these are living mantra. Yeah, yeah. So the, the three, you asked me about the specific locations. The three, there are three different chapters in the book. One is based on a community in a place called Devi Puram, which is south of Vishakhapatnam in Andhra Pradesh. All the three locations are in Andhra. And in this particular location, um, a, the guru is somebody who was a a nuclear physicist. Actually, I don't know if you can be a nuclear physicist in the past tense. I guess once you're a nuclear physicist, you're always a nuclear physicist, maybe. <laughs> but uh, he was a nuclear physicist by profession. And then he had a visionary experience and then sort of slowly got into um, uh, goddess worship. And, uh, and, that, and, and he constructed... Uh, he he's created a temple in the shape of a of a Sri Yantra, which is a triangular. When you see it from the sky, it exactly looks like a Sri Chakra. Now, Sri Chakra is a uh, diagrammatic embodiment of the goddess. Um, it's made of triangles that are intersecting each other, and um, that was the first location. The second location was in Guntur, uh, where there is a temple called the Swayam Siddha Kali Peetam, where uh, I, I have to say the story is, because I didn't see it, is that the, the image materialized uh, in front of a group of people. What a person said to me was, one moment she was not there, and the next moment she was there, which is the, 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 the deity in that temple. Um, materialized uh, out of nowhere that's the swayam so it's called swayam siddha that is self manifested self made um, uh, uh, kali kali is uh, the name of goddess the third place is a place called nachiketa tapovan which is south of hyderabad about 80 kilometers south of hyderabad uh, where um, there are there is a community of people who are engaged in uh, community activities and uh, sadhana or uh, spiritual practice is uh, part of their philosophy together with their activities. It's a more yoga-based um, tradition there, I would say. So that pro- these, three, um, these three case studies provide, mm-hmm. provide um, on the one hand, a, uh, a great deal of diversity in terms mm-hmm. of what you're encountering. And then ironically, Despite the diversity, you really get a sense of the, the the themes that run across. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It was there, and I'm sure you must have had a lifetime in each of these sites. Um, <laughs> now, was there a specific site that maybe spoke to your call to you personally a little more than any of the other ones? Yeah, well, it was Nachiketa, and it was because I guess it's because I probably didn't have the ability to to really uh, connect with uh, the more ritualistic approach of, uh, let's say, the Swayam Siddha Kali Peetam. And uh, where is it, Nachiketa? I think it was also partly the personal relationships that sort of like the rapport that just like um, happened. And um, with uh, one particular uh, person there, the, the guru, one particular guru there, uh, from whom I also got uh, mantra initiation. And so that that became the location where I actually was doing a lot of my own experimenting, if you want to call it that, or you can just say sadhana, because after a point, I think I just simply became sincere. At the beginning, I was certainly, I certainly was experimenting uh, at the beginning. And then uh, as I got deeper into it, I sort of, I also came to a point where I just had to put my recorder aside and and my notebook aside and 
really genuinely sort of get into the skin of a practitioner. So that was Nachiketa, Tapo one, um, south of Hyderabad. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, there really is a difference um, from being in observer mode to being in immersion mode. And it's, it's exponentially more so in your case when you are at these sacred sites, both practicing and researching how mm-hmm. folks practice and what they experience. But even on a much more um, mundane level, mm-hmm. um, when one goes into a temple uh, mm-hmm. to, to have visitation or to have darshan of the deity, or when one goes into a temple with an iPhone to take pictures to send back to mom or dad, <laughs> or your... Or yes, your, yes, or your yes, 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 yes. It's a a drastically different experience when one goes into an experience uh, directly versus when one goes into the experience in a mediated way with an an agenda, albeit an intellectual agenda. So I can only imagine that at some point you were like, um, I'm going to pick up the mala, the the rosary, (laughs) and I'm going to put aside... I'm going to put aside. <laughs> I know, and it, and it would always be, wait, is something happening? Is something happening? Is something happening? No, 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 nothing happened. Or yes, something, did it? Did I imagine it? Did it happen? You know, it's just like this whole dialogue. It's beyond the point. It's no use because you can't really do experience in experience. Well, I mean, you can't, you can't do research in experience until you actually experience without the research. So it's oh. like a, a con- contradiction, you know. My my favorite analogy for this divide is being um, is doing music theory, uh, okay, or, or even uh, versus playing an instrument, uh-huh. or even doing ethnography of how folks learn to play their instrument, <laughs> what they feel when they play their instrument. Right. You will yeah. necessarily pick up your instrument, and it may yeah. or may not map directly onto your method of study. Yeah. However, there's only so much that you can sit by the banks and 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 study people swimming before you decide to hop in yourself. Yes. Yeah. But you know, it's so interesting it was because, in fact, one of the themes that emerged was all about practice and theory itself. So even though, I mean, when we talk about the immersion, in fact, the immersion was a way to discover that the other practitioners are researchers themselves, you know, because what are they discovering is they're discovering new things about mantras, you know. So they're discovering the poetics of practice. And that's what it becomes theory eventually. Because when you look at scholarship on mantra, you find, um, basically you find scholarship of two kinds, I would say in modern scholarship, right? There's one kind that recapitulates what did Anandvardhana say or what did this source source say like from centuries ago and so on. Um, The second kind sort of looks at mantra through other lenses such as let's say speech act theory or um, you know uh, semiotics or whatever but the point is the person who is doing mantra is not doing it because it's a speech act they're not you know they're not they're not they're trying to um, they're not thinking of they're not uh, I would say embodying like uh, like a different discipline for them a deity is reality you know is not an aesthetic object um right and irrespective of whether or not obviously um the the approach uh, to that reality is a subjective experience that can yeah. be verified empirically but having said that there's great there's great intellectual um there, there's great intellectual fruit in thinking alongside folks who yeah have those experiences but also they will be the future texts exactly because what what we are studying today is which what we call theory is has come out of they're like let's call it off takes of practice and so whatever the off takes of practice are now will become future theory so we can't be 15th centuries out of date Mm. When, when we're studying mantra. So in fact, even though I was attaining, finding an immersion, it was really actually the immersion that helped me to re-theorize mantra based on the fieldwork. So the last chapter, which is understanding mantra again, in which it's a very, it's a respectful homage, let's say, to that famous book called Understanding Mantra, 
which mm-hmm. you know is fantastic but what i did was understanding mantra again meaning how do you wipe off what's on the blackboard for just for a short period of time just look at the information from the field work is it, what what can i reconstruct about mantra based on this understanding and that's what that chapter was well it's obviously your approach of having a practice and having um that perspective um alongside your study of of mantric practice your approach befits the topic itself yes it's it's not going to it's not going to be um arguably uh, arguably it would be a great challenge to grapple with such a topic without any kind of experience of what happens when someone sits and does a yes yes arguably sitting there and even saying om namah shivaya a hundred times whether you're a believer or not but just going through the hoops even <laughs> yes. will give you a perspective of psychologically what happens to an individual physiologically what happens to yes. an individual what what is that experience like and how far can one take it so so i think you straddle the line well and i think it's 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 particularly um apropos to the the topic which is why you've probably had um some illumination where others may not have because of your specific practices and also your your obvious tight relations to the folks that you were interviewing um, one theme that comes to mind that I, I would like to touch on, we talked about, uh, or alluded to at least, the guru-disciple relationship. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about the primacy of sound in the Hindu tradition. Okay. That's something that I think is very important. Um, and then there's another topic that I would love to hear your thoughts mm-hmm. on, and it's this little thing called embodiment. It's a topic okay. that comes up over and over again. Okay. And maybe you could even specifically draw on the, um, uh, the 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 was it the Devi Puram the first site you were at okay okay yeah um, a primacy of sound um, you know sometimes people talk about sound and vision like they are competition to each other and one wonders whether oh is this more a sound based tradition or a vision based tradition and um, when you really look at it actually they're both involved in vision in vision as in visionary experience or in understanding is knowledge or when uh, perception or um, the um, uh, awareness or uh, information, let's call it information, um, is both sound and vision. And um, in the mantras that Daivaratha came up with, if you look at the internal evidence of that, you'll see that all the senses are actually engaged, right? Um, so it is true that I actually started my journey by getting in, by going into the sound. And then you'll see that a lot of the discussion is about vision in the book, you know, is vision visual? Is it optical? And, uh, you know, or if it, if it is not, what form is it in? Um, and what is actually uh, mantra? I mean, because syllables obviously have sounds and then but then how do they how do they receive it in what form you know and some have talked about seeing scripts and not not just uh, hearing it in their inner ear but actually seeing the the written form so i guess even for mantra i'm not um, I'm not going to be partial to one or the other. It seems to be more of an understanding, which then translates as sound and vision. So deity is, of course, a visual form. Some practitioners did describe how when they did mantras, they saw the deity forming. So you could say that the mantra formed the deity or the sound form, the vision, right? And that sound was a sound form of the visual form. Um, there seem to be so many variations. So I wouldn't actually agree that the Indian tradition has got more of a primacy of sound. Um, I, I, I don't think I would have a decision either way on that. The relationship is more complex, it seems, between the visual yeah. and the auditory. Um, yeah. Now, would you agree that there's an obvious emphasis on embodiment at these sites? Yes. 
100%. Particularly in Devi Puram, um, where the temple itself is in the form of a yantra, uh, the diagrammatic, uh, it's an, an, an iconic form of the deity. Um, people seem to realize um, the goddess within themselves and they seem to experience the yantra as themselves meaning because in the um in the structure of a tantric practice the worshiper begins with uh, arriving at a point of identification with the deity and then proceeding to worship the deity. So you're worshiping yourself or you're worshiping the deity in you or you in the deity or however you wish to um, create that connection. But the specifics of the experience that I um, heard in the narratives were completely like um, they were each, each one was different. And the, the way that the embodied experience was narrated. For example, one practitioner saw the yantra as cut up triangles inside her body. Uh, another practitioner placed himself mentally, visually, inside the yantra, uh, which is the three-dimensional yantra, and he would sort of walk up and down the yantra, almost placing the mantra at the, at the location of each of the deities who was uh, positioned at different locations in that yantra. A third practitioner had, um, had a problem, and then him and his wife drew a yantra in their room and sat on the yantra and did their, you know, they did the mantra millions of times. So the way that the... And, and the yantra is the goddess. It's not a symbol of the goddess, right? So it seems to be sort of a mapping, a mapping of the body of the, of the practitioner with the deity, which is also the sacred location. The guru of Devi Puram, uh, Amritanandanath Saraswati, Actually, in the, the very first experience that he had um, that he describes in his memoirs is how he had a vision of, uh, um, of being the sacrifice. He, that, that, he, that, it was, that he was the sacrifice. He was the offering. And then he felt a heavy object in his heart and then subsequent to that, he finds on the spot that he meditated at, he finds a uh, Mahameru, uh, like an actual uh, three-dimensional yantra buried at the spot. So the vision that he has is actualized by the actual embodied deity object. That then becomes the site of the temple where everybody who goes there, who take, gets a Kalavahana Puja, sits upon that spot and, and receives the Kalavahana Puja. So you, re, you receive the Puja, uh, Puja means worship. In the Kalavahana ritual, you are, um, you are worshipped, or rather the deity in you is worshipped. And in fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, there's a line in Devi Puram which says that you are Devi Puram and that, that it's something like that. It sort of identifies the practitioner with the location. It's a very embodied practice. Mm. Now, speaking of location, one of the things you said you found surprising in your conclusion was the extent to which folks actually physically travel to a location to participate. Yeah, recitation or to receive initiation um, in this day and age where you and I are, are I'm currently in Toronto and you're currently in Bangalore and we are we are communing via uh, technological mm -hmm. means and uh, you found that surprising um, maybe yeah say, because I had already thought that you know sort of digital 
there's so many people researching digital puja and digital worship and so on that I, uh, you know, and with, I guess, exactly as you're saying, like our conversation, which is happening, um, I don't know, is it like a 10 hour time difference? Um, uh, at I'm, least, I'm, at I'm least. just surprised to see it sort of like uh, how the physical plays such an important role, you know, it's almost as if for, uh, um, it's almost like a habitat, you know, like you mm-hmm. go to a bird sanctuary because the bird, you're going to find the birds there. It's almost like they're going to that spot. Like why do people go and sit at, at a samadhi to do their meditation, you know, um, because there is something in that location that makes it conducive to get faster focus. Oh, this yeah, and if the deities are, it's it's almost like the deities are hanging around at that spot if you want to go and catch them there. Well, yeah, exactly. This this brings up questions of sacred space. And, yeah. for example, in Hinduism, we have the Shaktipitas, you know, spot yeah. where it is understood yes. that that the goddess resides throughout India, um, yeah. which which is quite fascinating. And I think the, the emphasis on locale is yet another extension yeah. of the emphasis on embodiment to be there yeah. in person, in front of yeah. someone in person. Um, yeah. Now, imagination. There's some really, really fascinating insights about imagination and the role of imagination and the construction of imagination for mantra recitation and beyond. Tell us about imagination. Wow. Um, you know, it's really fascinating how important it is. Intentionality. Uh, it's called sankalpa, which is a creative generative intention um an imagination with with a very deeply felt imagination and how that is crucial to manifestation um it's not just about uttering something mindlessly well actually it is mindlessly because you are supposed to be kind of empty minded <laughs> but i mean uttering something but putting a directed intention in combination with that utterance that is, seems to be part of the poetics of practice to achieve efficacy of a mantra. To the extent that, you know, there is mantra sahita and mantra rahita, meaning with mantra and without mantra, sadhana. So you can do sadhana without mantra. I mean, mantra is not crucial to achievement in sadhana. And um, in my exploration and uh, thought on on this whole topic i sort of found that you know it's not you there seem to be so many different levels i mean of course there is the articulated mantra and then there is the mental mantra but there also seems to be a no mantra you know just intention if you can hold on to that intention or you can direct your will or directed uh, thought seems to be a mantra in itself. It's so fascinating mm. how practitioners approach it and how far they go with that. And so that begs the question then, why mantra? I mean, is, exactly. it, such, is, is, it, is it such that there are uh, uh, more dynamic experiences, uh, deeper fruits? Like, is there, could you generalize in terms of why mantra? Why would someone... Oh my God, if I could generalize, Raj, but... Uh, if I could generalize, I guess it's just easier with mantra because, you know, then you don't, if it's like saying, um, what can I say? It, trying to, trying to sit in a room and uh, focus, but the mind is, how is the mind going to focus? Because it's just such a fluid floating um, sort of anchorless thing in itself, you know? So for example, if you engage all your senses and you're doing bhajans, then it's actually easier to help your mind focus in that direction of that sankalpa, of that thought, of uh, feeling or bhava, feeling of, let's say, if you're doing a bhajan or a mantra to a deity, it's easier to, to let that meaning and let that utterance and that activity help direct your thought um, towards that Results. That's uh, fascinating. So, definitely for anyone interested in um, anthropology of religion and ethnography, in living 
tradition and specifically obviously interested in mantra, mantra recitation, definitely check out Living Mantra um, by Mani Rao. Before we let you go, since we've taken up enough of your time for one day, tell us <laughs> what, what occupies you now? What are you working on? What's the next project for you? Um, I can't talk a lot about it, but I can tell you I have a handful of projects. One is a, actually it is translator's notebook, sort of, trans, sort of translator's notes or notebook. Um, it's, a, it's a book that draws from my translation of the Gita and uh, goes a little deeper into the number of various questions and problems and failures and speculations and so on uh, of that uh, enterprise. That sounds and, fascinating. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just one example I can give you. I have another thought, which is about exploring the history of ideas to do with uh, uh, what I'm... And my tentative title is Forbidden Veda. You know, is what is Nishedh? What is forbidden? And like, uh, you know, there are certain... There are certain prohibitions, such as that women can't recite Veda and so on. So one thought I have is to take that up as a topic and just like really look into both sides on that. So I would definitely read a book called Forbidden Veda. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the the tentative title always has to be provocative. And who maybe it's a Hindu studies nerd joke, but who who wouldn't want to read a book called Forbidden Veda? But with any luck, I'll be reading it in in preparation for your next... um, New Books Network Hindu Studies podcast interview on Forbidden Veda. It has been, <laughs> it's, been kind a, of you. <laughs> it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Um, so. Very Thank insightful. You. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking as well. Take Thank care. You.